All right. Thank you so much, worship team. Thank you, Mark, and thank you so much for all of you being here today. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 14 again. 1 Corinthians 14. I want to continue looking at what the Lord has to say to us through this chapter and find some encouragement. Even if you're not um, terribly interested in spiritual gifts, there are things about what Paul says about the exercise of spiritual gifts and how they're to take place in the body that apply to relationships in general. But hopefully, as a believer, you do have some interest in spiritual gifts, an appropriate interest in that, and that this will be an encouragement to you as well. But I just want to remind you of what it says right at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I think Calvin is right when he says that all of the ministry of the Word of God, as it takes place in the body of Christ, and uh, even as it's ministered to unbelievers, is meant to call people to faith and hope and love, and for those who are already Christians, to call them to greater faith and greater hope and greater love. And I think that's reflected in uh, what we have on the front of our bulletin when we talk about resting in Jesus. That's at the heart of our faith, is that we're trusting Jesus and what he's done for us to be accepted by God. Not anything we do. It's all by grace, through the work of Christ. And our hope is certainly in what God promises us in light of what Jesus did. The life that we just sang about. He is the life. He is the one who satisfies our souls. He is the one who meets our needs. And so our hope is in Jesus because of all that he's done for us and all that God has promised us based on who he is and what he's done for us. And then obviously love is the pursuit of what God calls us to do and what God calls us to be in each relationship, in each circumstance. And what Paul does in this chapter is he tells us what it looks like in the worship of the church in a general way, but specifically with regard to the exercise of two particular gifts, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. But we can learn a lot about just worship in the church. We can learn a lot about what love should look like in relationships, even as we talk about this very specific application that Paul makes here. So let me read. This time I just want to read the first five verses, and then as we move along we'll read other sections as well. And uh, this will help us to um, think about it section by section. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. One of the things that I'd like to do is remind us before we get into this passage what Paul has already said back in 1 Corinthians 12 because in 1 Corinthians 12, he begins the discussion of the spiritual gifts. 
And he talks about the fact that all of us have been given a gift. Um, It's helpful to realize that in general, every person has a purpose. In our day and time, because of evolution, people have the idea that we came from nothing and we're going to nothing. And so we really don't have any real meaning or purpose in life unless we give it meaning and purpose or unless somebody else gives it some kind of meaning and purpose. And if people in charge don't think your life has any meaning or purpose, then they can do with you as they feel is right. And that's the kind of the the world we live in right now in so many different ways. But the Bible says every person is created with a purpose. God made us and he made us for himself, which means we were created to glorify and enjoy God. To glorify God obviously has to do with to worship God, but also to be like God. To enjoy God means to have a real relationship with him that is truly satisfying. And so we were created by God and for God. And at the heart of glorifying and and enjoying God is the issue of being holy and being happy. The Bible tells us that holiness looks like love. That's what holiness is. Sometimes when I was growing up, I thought holiness was just about not doing certain things. That's not the biblical idea of holiness. Holiness is about being like God, who is love. So it's not just about not doing things. It's about loving people like God loves. And so it's about being holy. But it's also about being happy. The Bible says not only pursue love, as it says at the beginning of this uh, chapter, but it also says in, to rejoice always. What does that mean? Does it mean we're happy about everything that happens? Not in and of itself, but it does mean that God wants us to be happy. Happy in who he is. Happy in what he's promised to be for us and do for us. And the fact that he's going to work everything together for our good. And so we glorify and enjoy him as we pursue love and as we truly seek to rejoice in God. But that doesn't happen naturally. We're born sinners. We're born rebels. And we have to be reconciled to God. And that's why Jesus came. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. Because we celebrate his life and death and resurrection for sinners. And all of us who've received Jesus are forgiven. And once we are forgiven and reconciled to God, then we can begin fulfilling that purpose of glorifying and enjoying God by being holy and happy. Not perfectly here, but growing in that. But there's another purpose that comes into play that's a part of that bigger purpose, and that's the purpose of our role in the body of Christ. That when Paul talks about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, he says all of us are part of a body, and every part of the body is important. Every part of the body plays a role, which means every part, every person has a purpose in the body of Christ. That nobody's without a gifting, Peter says. Peter says uh, that we've all been gifted and we're to use our gifts to serve each other and to glorify God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Corinthians that you have a purpose within, within God's larger purpose to use the way God has gifted you to build up the body 
of Christ. To build it up in what? Build it up in what way? When Ephesians 4, it says to build up the body in love. So he's saying pursue love because your purpose in being gifted is to actually help the body be built up in love. And so your goal needs to be consistent with what the purpose of your gift is. It's actually to help the body grow in love. And so sometimes we just need to be reminded that our purpose isn't simply to check off boxes. You know, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to do this. Our purpose isn't simply just to go to work and earn a living. Our purpose is much bigger than that. It's as big as God is and the glory of God in our lives. But it's also important in the church to realize we have a purpose that nobody here as a part of this body is without a gift. And many of you have more than one, I believe. I don't think it necessarily means that we all just have one. We may have more than one giftings. And yet all of them are important And all of them are to be a part of what God uses to build up the body of Christ in love. And so whenever you think about transitions, like the transition we're about to make right now, we don't want to forget that all of us have a role to play in this transition, in this new season, and that it really is important that we recognize that, yeah, what I do or don't do is not insignificant. God wants to use me individually to help build up this body in love, even through this transition. So I just want to encourage you in that and remind myself as well, because it's very easy to forget those kinds of things. Well, Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians of these kinds of things, that they were saved by grace. And they are gifted uh, by grace as well. The word um, that you're, many of you are familiar with, but maybe not all of you are familiar with, with regard to the charismatic movement, grace is the Greek word charis. Charisma or charisma, see, uh, charisma, yeah, I guess that's the way it is, would be the, the Greek word for spiritual gift, like 1 Peter 4.10 uses it. So the whole idea of the charismatic movement is the idea of a, a movement that started, I think, in the 60s that was very concerned about whether or not the church was actually using and encouraging and ex- exercising all the gifts that we find in the New Testament. And so as a result of that, um, there have been all kinds of different positions that people have taken on uh, what we should think about what we see in 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and what we see happening today in the church. And some people are in favor of what uh, many people in the charismatic movement think about 1 Corinthians 14 and some disagree with what they think about what we see in 1 Corinthians 14. And there's a great divide and there's, there's a lot of controversy and unfortunately uh, we don't always handle that very well Um, in the broad sense, in the evangelical church. Um, I mean, there are those with very strong opinions who would say that for the majority of the charismatic movement, movement, um, it is the most serious threat to the health of the evangelical church that you can find in the church today. That there's nothing that spawns more false doctrines Uh, today in our day and time than that movement. And that's what some people think in the church. Others would say 
that those who talk like that um, probably are about this close to being atheists. That they think it's nonsensical to think that um, the charismatic movement um, is that kind of a threat. And so basically my point is there are really strong opinions on this whole matter. And I bet if I surveyed our church, we wouldn't all agree about the spiritual gifts. And especially about the gifts like what Paul is talking about here, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. We probably all have different uh, ideas about whether what happens today is what was happening then or not. And uh, whether or not we ourselves ought to be encouraging that kind of thing in our own church, which is a legitimate question in light of 1 Corinthians 14. And so that's why, for me, in thinking a lot about this issue, I think it's so important to recognize the first two words. (laughs) Pursue love. Because it's so very easy to be very unloving. Um, when you disagree with someone and when you feel very strongly that your position is right and when you feel their position is a threat. It's very easy not to be um, loving in the way that we should be. So last week, we talked about the importance of pursuing love as God defines it here in the scriptures, agape love, which is basically, fundamentally, to lay down our lives to please God, to do good to others in light of what the Bible says. That's a very simple definition of agape love. To lay down my life, to please God, and to do good to others, which is the same thing, um, according to the Bible, because it's our guide. But there was a quote that I wanted to highlight, because we've talked a little bit about the issue of the pursuit of love doesn't take place Simply on this level. The pursuit of love begins on this level. Between me and God. That in order to pursue love. Like the Bible calls me to. On this horizontal human to human level. I need to be focused on this level. My relationship with God. And I told you I think about. There's a a book on C.S. Lewis by Joe Rigney. He's kind of assessing and summarizing uh, C.S. Lewis's thoughts on this. And I think C.S. Lewis is right when he basically argues that if you look at how the Lord Jesus talks about love, you see that love for our neighbor is actually to be ruled by love for God. And we pursue love for our neighbor by pursuing love for God, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so to speak. And so there's a quote out of the book, that book which says this. And we talked about the lower loves. He talks about love for family, love for friends, love, romantic love and that kind of thing. So that's what he means by lower loves. We've seen how the lower loves can go wrong. They can aspire to deity, setting themselves up as rivals to God with the result that they become demonic. But it need not be so. Instead, the lower loves are meant to be governed by God's love. We must put first things first. When our loves are out of order, meaning my love for family 
is more important than my love for God. My love for my friends is more important than love for God. My love for my romantic interests is more important than love for God. When those things are out of order, it is because we love earthly things too much in proportion to our love for God. But in that case, the issue is not the greatness of our earthly loves. And this is the key point I want to make before I move on. The issue is not the greatness of our earthly loves. The issue is not, it's not that you love your family too much or that you love your friends too much or that you love your romantic interests too much. The issue is, it is the smallness of our love to God. So it's in comparison. When Jesus says things like, if you don't hate your mother and father, you can't follow me. What does he really mean by that? Does he really mean we ought to hate our mother and our father? No. What he's saying is, your love for me is to be so great that your mother and father might interpret it as hate because you would prefer me above them. That's what he's talking about. Uh, Or to your friends. I can't do that. I don't believe God wants me to do that. Your friends could say, well... You hate us. You don't like us. You don't want to be with us because we're preferring God and his approval over the approval of our family, friends, romantic interests, or whoever that may be. So the issue is not the greatness of our earthly loves. It is the smallness of our love to God. It has to do with ultimate allegiance, deepest desire, and affection, fundamental loyalty. So... I think that's a really important point when we're talking about pursuing love. The issue isn't, you know, I need to love my family less. I need to love the church less. I need to love, you know, people outside the church less. I just need to love God more. No, that's not not what we're talking about. Love your family as much as you can and ask for grace to love them more. Love your friends as much as you can and ask for grace to love them more. Your coworkers people who are lost, whoever it may be. But recognize the most important thing is for you to love God more than you love anyone or anything else because that love is to govern, is to guide all the other loves so that you truly love them. Because the whole idea is once you don't love God above all the other loves, your love for your family and your friends becomes demonic. It becomes destructive. It becomes hate, not love. You begin to grasp them. You begin to use them. Begin, you begin to ignore what the Bible says about how to relate to them because it's all about them or it's all about you. And so I just emphasize this because the reality is that um, the conflict in the church over um, spiritual gifts, Paul would say, is an issue of love. It was an issue of love then, and it's an issue of love now. It hasn't changed. This, there are s- similar controversies now, today, over spiritual gifts as there were in the first century. And pa- Paul is saying the issue is truly love. Love for God that guides our love for each other. And then what he does is to highlight what God says should be the loving way to handle these issues. And that's what is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 14. And so let me just highlight what's in these first five verses here in 1 Corinthians 14. 
He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So that's another highlight. He doesn't say, think little of spiritual gifts. He says, really go after spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire it. Earnestly love your family. Earnestly love your friends. Earnestly love lost people. But make sure that your your pursuit of the love for God and loving people like God loves is ruling over all that. But he says, especially that you may prophesy, he's going to argue that all spiritual gifts are important, none are insignificant, but in the worship of the church, some gifts are more important. In In terms of what happens in the worship of the body of Christ. So he says for in verse 2, and obviously he's contrasting the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. And he's doing this because the Corinthians had elevated the gift of tongues to the highest point, And it was causing trouble. And Paul is trying to help them see that the gift of tongues is important, but it's not to be most important. In fact, the gift of prophecy is more important, and he's going to explain why. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. That's an interesting verse in light of all the controversy over what Paul is really talking about here. There are some people who will argue that everything Paul is talking about in this chapter is in regard to human language. And some will even argue that um, if Paul uses a singular um, uh, form of the word tongue, he's talking about um, vain babblings that are really worshiping demons. And when he uses the plural of tongues, he's talking about human languages that are legitimate. There are some who take that position. I don't see anything in the text that would support that. I would say that's reading into it based on some other considerations at best. There has to be other considerations outside of this text to say that, and some do. But it appears that he, he's making the point that one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men. That the gift of tongues, as it was exercised here in Corinth, was actually something between that person and God. That he's not speaking to man, but he's speaking to God. And it's something that's happening uh, through, it appears not, well, the Holy Spirit's involved, but it's um, something that happens through his spirit in which he's speaking mysteries. The idea of speaking things that um, are a mystery to people, certainly around him, even a mystery to the person doing it, um, and no one understands and so that seems to be the picture that he's painting there. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, all kinds of people, if I were to take another poll of our congregation and say, so what is your experience with the gift of tongues or the issue of tongues? Um, some of you would say, I, ha- I don't have any experience with tongues. Others of you would say, I have a lot of experience with tongues. Some would say, Uh, I've had some experience. I would be in the some category. When I was in college, um, because of a friend I had, I got involved in a a group on, I think it was on the LSU campus, that was a charismatic group, and 
making a long story very short, um, they did all that they could to help me receive the gift of tongues. And I walked away from that night doing what I thought was speaking in tongues. Now, I did test it one time, and I think I've shared this one time. I, I prayed with the mother of a friend who spoke in tongues, and I did that, and I was just waiting for her to you know, slap me on the head and say, stop making stuff up. Because it seemed like that's what I was doing. But not everybody would say that. Not everybody would say that they're making stuff up. But that seemed to be my experience in light of how I was led to try to do what I did. Um, it's one of those interesting things. You read through this chapter and Paul says the gift of tongues is men speaking to God. And he does say that it's for personal edification. He goes on to say in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He builds up himself. And so the idea is, Paul seems to be highlighting the fact that one who is speaking in an unknown language of some form um, is speaking to God and it edifies himself. But he's going to go on to argue that if you do that in the worship of the church, you aren't edifying anyone unless there's an interpreter. And so he actually encourages people to pray to interpret. So if you read all that Paul has to say in this chapter, and you really have to read it all and think, think it through, he basically says, if there is no interpretation through the speaker or through someone else, it should not be done publicly. You should keep it to yourself. But he does seem to imply that even if the speaker in his own private worship of God speaks in tongues and he doesn't know what he's saying, he is still somehow receiving some edification. But it's not as great as if he understood what he was saying. And certainly no one else receives any edification unless they understand what's going on as well. There's all kinds of questions for me that, that come up with regard to what was taking place in the first century. Um, there are those who would say with regard to the gift of prophecy in the first century, uh, that was immediate revelation from God. But later on, it was just in the form of preaching. Like the reformers, like John Calvin would say, the gift of prophecy in their day and time and now in our day and time is just gifted preaching of the Bible. It's not direct revelation from God. But... They, at the same time, they would say in the first century is direct revelation from God, which means it kind of changed. And so one question I have as I wrestle with what is Paul talking about here? Why could not the Holy Spirit gift people on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with human languages for a certain purpose? And yet in 1 Corinthians 14, that same Gifting of language be in another form, modified form, so that it was different. It wasn't necessarily just human languages. I think we have to ask the question, if the Holy Spirit, if it's true what the Reformers said, that the gift of prophecy doesn't look the same, well, why couldn't it have not looked the same in every situation 
in the first century based on that same principle. And those who there are many who would say about the, the gift of tongues that it was meant as a human language, as a witness to those who couldn't understand, like it was in, on the day of Pentecost. They spoke in languages of people there, and they recognized the message through those languages. The question is, why would you need an interpreter if the Holy Spirit is giving you a language so that you can speak to somebody else who needs to hear it in that language? Why couldn't they simply tell you what's being said? So there are all kinds of questions for me, and I'm just saying we need to think hard and long before we begin to automatically just dismiss what people say about these things because there are a lot of questions and I tend to agree with R.C. Sproul, who basically said, when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, it doesn't seem to be exactly like what we find in Acts chapter 2. And we have to be careful at the same time of assuming that everything that's going on today is exactly what was happening in 1 Corinthians 14. And therefore, we have to um, maybe be a little less dogmatic and very, very careful in how we try to think through what is and being, isn't being said here. Well, he goes on. So I'm just basically raising a lot of questions for you that I'm not necessarily going to answer. Um, but to encourage you, encourage us to be humble in our assessment of these things and to be kind toward those who differ from us in these things. Um, he goes on to say, let me just back up a little bit. In verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men. So the one with the gift of tongues speaks to God. One who prophesies speaks to men. For edification, building up, for exhortation, and consolation. Exhortation tends to be to the idea of encouraging someone to respond in a certain way, to do certain things. Consolation means comfort, um, uh, encouragement in light of difficulties and suffering and things like that. And so the picture here is the picture of, as Tom Scriner has said, the gift of prophecy is communicating revelation from God in a spontaneous utterance. So that appears to be what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 14 is that um, those with the gift of prophecy are receiving revelation from God that they're to speak to the congregation. One of the interesting things I found out um, so is it okay, Jan, if I talk about Prophet Eddie just a little bit? Okay. Prophet Eddie, um, before we got married, um, Jan went to a, a worship service where there was a prophet who was ministering. And her friend got her to go down front and talk to Prophet Eddie, I think, after the service. And Prophet Eddie told Jan, and this is long before we had met or anything, she was going to marry a pastor and told her some other things as well. Um, and she did. She married a pastor. And the question is, what do we do with that? Does God reveal the future like that today? Um, you can talk to Jan about what she thinks about that um, because she would say that it wasn't as simple as, oh, I'm going to marry a pastor. Uh, it raises the question of, what do I do with that information? That information isn't, isn't entirely um, specific, so um, couldn't God have given me a name? You know, or, I mean, there's all kinds of things about that kind of uh, revelation today that raises questions. 
But um, again, I mentioned R.C. Sproul. Uh, he talks about the fact that he was a part of the charismatic movement for a while. And he says there were probably 40 different times people came and prophesied over him. And he said they were all 0 for 40. Nothing ever came true. And so that's why a lot of people struggle with is today, what's going on today, what was going on back in the first century. It's because there appears to be some inconsistencies there. So Paul, just getting back to the text here, is making a distinction between tongues and prophecy, one speaking to God, one speaking to men. But he says in verse 5, interestingly enough, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. So he's telling them, make sure that you value prophecy more in the worship of the, the church. But at the same time, he says, I wish you all had the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, he's already said, all of you aren't going to speak in tongues. If you read the end of 1 Corinthians 12, not everybody gets the same gift. But there was a sense in which Paul valued the gift of tongues as it was being experienced then. And he actually says, you know, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. And that last point is the point that he's going to make throughout the chapter is when you come together as a body of believers, what you do in church should be edifying. It should be building up each other. And I don't know about you. I've been in uh, services where everybody is speaking in tongues. And no, and those who are, well, I would say, um, I assume that the person who's speaking in tongues here doesn't know what the person next to them is saying. And those that, who are there who aren't doing that, they're just kind of looking around wondering what's going on. They don't know what's going on. And Paul is going to argue in this chapter that does not fit the goal of worship because it doesn't edify, because people don't know what's being said. They don't know what's going on. He does say in verse 5 that if there is some interpretation, then it, be, it can be edifying, but only if people understand what is going on. And so he's going to emphasize in this chapter that whatever we do, needs to be something that edifies and builds up believers in love. That's the goal, that we can be built up in faith, built up in hope, built up in love. And I mentioned last week, um, the idea of edification can be seen in various verses. Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, to edify someone, is to pursue their good. And especially in terms of speaking, as we see it here. And that same idea is in Ephesians 4, when it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. There wasn't any grace being given if people didn't understand what the tongues were. No grace was being given. Even if the person individually received some kind of edification, it wasn't being given out to anyone else around them. And that's what Paul is emphasizing. And so, um, as I said before, Ephesians 4 emphasizes the fact 
that we're to speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mean, one of the practical questions that goes beyond just the issue of spiritual gifts is, when you look at your daily life, as I look at my daily life, are we consciously seeking to grow in love? Consciously seeking to grow in love for God, consciously seeking to grow in love for our church, for our family, for our co-workers, or are we consumed with other things? But that's not necessarily our conscious thought. We're not necessarily praying about it. We're not necessarily doing things that feed that. We're just kind of going through our day. We're just checking off our to-do list. We're just caught up in being swept along by things that just have to be given attention to. And Paul is encouraging the believers to not let that be the case in their lives or in the church, but that we're actually consciously seeking to be built up in love ourselves and to build up others in love around us as well. Um, When I think about the whole issue of how different Christians can think about these kinds of things, especially the gifts of prophecy, um, speaking in tongues, miracles, and being given the gift of healing people and that kind of thing, especially those supernatural gifts like that, there, there are a number of different positions that people can take. And I think it's helpful to realize that not everybody's in exactly the same place. There are some people who would say those kinds of gifts that I just mentioned, those supernatural kind of gifts like prophecy and tongues that Paul is talking about here, don't happen anymore. The Spirit isn't uh, giving them to Christians anymore. That's called the cessationist position. They have ceased. There are others who would take the opposite position and would say, no, all those gifts are still being given by the Holy Spirit in the church as a normal thing. And they would be non-cessationists or continuationists. Those gifts still continue even today. But there are other finer positions that people can take. There are some, especially Reformed Christians, like John Piper, who's a, you would call him a reformed, uh, charismatic. And I think he'd be in the uh, same kind of category of those as those who would call themselves open but cautious. And what they mean by that is they want to be careful to be discerning. They don't just want to accept everything as being from the Holy Spirit. They recognize that there can be um, counterfeit, things going on that are claimed to be from the Spirit but aren't. But they're also very concerned about quenching the Spirit. They they don't want to quench what the Holy Spirit is doing. So they're open but cautious. There are others um, who are the opposite of that, who would be more what I would call, they don't use this term, but I would use the term closed and resistant to even being open and cautious, meaning that they're much more dogmatic on the gifts of tongues and prophecy and healings and and miracles today. And they would say, whatever people say about that, 
God isn't doing that right now because that was something that God was doing in the first century, but he's not doing that now. And um, and so there's a very closed and resistant st- stand that's being taken. There are others who would seem to say, you know what? There's nothing in the New Testament that just clearly says God's never going to uh, give any particular gift again in the history of the church. And so what about in places where um, there is no witness for Christ or there's very little witness and there's great opposition? Um, Could God do some unique things there that he doesn't do everywhere? Could he gift people in special ways in those frontier mission areas that he doesn't do so in the U.S.? Um, Could he work extraordinarily work even miracles that we don't see today in our country in certain situations for the progress of the gospel in places where it is very um, dark and very closed. And there are those who would say, yeah, I think um, maybe God could do some unique things and unique people's lives and, and situations and might even do some interesting things right before Christ returns. Another position that some will take, and I think even the reformers took this, is that um, there may be gifts in the first century that looked a certain way that are still being exercised today, but they don't look the same. They've been modified. And as I've said before, the reformers seem to take the position that the gift of prophecy was modified after the completion of the New New Testament. That it was direct revelation, and now it's the gifted preaching of the gospel. And so modified giftings is another position that seems to be taken. So I, I just go take the time to go through that to say, you really need to talk to people. Just like for the, the issue of eschatology, uh, which means end times. What do you think is going to happen before Jesus comes back and when Jesus comes back? Every person is different. They may have different thoughts about what's going to happen with regard to when Jesus comes back. Every person, every believer might have different thoughts about um, the spiritual gifts as well. And it's helpful to try to understand why they believe what they believe. Well, I mentioned R.C. Sproul, and I just want to uh, close this section by um, highlighting some things he had to say about his experience. And he talked about the fact that when All this was happening in 1965. For him, he had students that he was teaching that were talking about their experience with the Holy Spirit and um, beginning to speak in tongues. And he began researching this more. Um, He didn't like it at first because he didn't like what was happening beforehand with the Pentecostal movement that started in the early 1900s. And so this new movement, the charismatic movement, he had some reservations about. But he began studying 1 Corinthians 14 and passages like this. And he began to notice some things. He began to notice that Paul says tongues could be edifying for the individual. And that he wishes all the Corinthians would speak in tongues. And so he was listening to what the Bible was saying in 1 Corinthians 14. He was listening to the experiences of his students. And so he said this as he wrestled through what to think about all this. 
and, and at the same time, let me just mention, he said there were a lot of different things going on in different denominations too. There were, there were charismatic types of giftings and experiences that were happening, happening in the Presbyterian church and Baptist churches and other churches as well. So it was kind of across uh, the board. He said, the major obstacle I still faced was the question of whether what was happening in the contemporary charismatic movement was indeed a revival of the New Testament gifts or not. That is, was the modern outbreak of glossolalia, which is tongues, the same thing that was practiced in the apostolic church? I found this to be an extremely difficult question to answer, given the lack of references to the phenomenon throughout church history, except for heretical groups such as the Montanists. He said, in any case, I sought the gift and was soon able to join my friends in praying in tongues. But I found no great edification from it and still preferred to pray with understanding. But he began, so it's interesting, first of all, just to note that he pursued it based on what he saw in Scripture and based on what people were saying. He said, well, maybe this is something that I'm lacking. And so he did basically the same thing I did. Maybe I need to uh, pursue this gifting. But the longer he did that, uh, obviously he said he didn't find it to be especially edifying for him. And he said that he realized that there were more and more people that were seeking to live the Christian life based on their subjective feelings rather than the written word of God that the movement tended to, whether or not it intended to or not, it tended to encourage people to be much more about how they felt rather than what the Bible had to say. And he said there there was a uh, creation of two classes of Christians because there were some who were saying that um, if you don't speak in tongues, then then you're not spirit-filled. You haven't been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so you got unbaptized Christians and baptized Christians and spirit-filled Christians and unspirit-filled Christians and all that sort of thing. But he says, you know, you can't find that in the New Testament. It's not, there's no two classes of Christians in the two New Testament. And he also noticed what I would say was my experience. I began, he said, this is a quote. He says, I began to see that anyone who is uninhibited enough can utter unintelligible sounds while in a posture of prayer. I think that's what I was doing because of the way I was coached. I was coached in a certain way. So that my experience, I'm not saying everybody's experience, but I'm saying my experience was I was taught to do something and I tried to follow that. And I think he's highlighting the fact that a lot of times that is people's experience. They're taught to do something and they follow what they're taught. The question is, are there those who are really gifted in this day and time with the gift of tongues, either as it was in the first century or at least in some modified form. What he says in conclusion is, my final departure from the movement came when I realized that I must live by the word as the spirit never works against the word, but always with it and through it. So he says, okay, I just realized that my guide cannot be what I feel or what I simply think or what anybody else says has to be the word of God. But he says this, and I think this is important. He says, I still enjoy fellowship with my charismatic friends and delight in their love for prayer. 
And that's one of the things he highlighted is that once he started meeting with his students about this issue, uh, they they prayed for hours and they even prayed all night one time. And he really appreciated that about those who were excited about this whole issue. He said, I am grateful for the real revival and interest in the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church that this movement has spawned. However, I am very concerned about the false doctrine it has brought in its wake. And so for him, he would say it's been a mixed bag. Uh, that his overall experience has been one that he has found encouragement in certain ways, but he's found a lot of false doctrine in a lot of ways too. And so uh, that's why there's a need to evaluate everything in light of the scriptures, in light of what we find in the word of God. Um, Let me just uh, mention a quote Um, from the Puritan John Owen that I find interesting, and I'll I'll begin to wrap things up here. John Owen, a Puritan who did not believe the supernatural gifts of tongues and prophecy and healings and miracles were continuing beyond the first century, does say this, and um, Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Reformed guy and also, also an cessationist, said, We don't oftentimes recognize that Reformed people talk this way. John Owen said, Although all these gifts and operations, these supernatural gifts, in 1 Corinthians 14, for instance, all these gifts and operations ceased in some respect, some of them absolutely, and some of them as to the immediate manner of communication and degree of excellency, Yet so far as the edification of the church was concerned in them, something that is analogous unto them was and is continued. What he's saying is that, yes, we believe that certain things that were happening in the first century are not happening today. But we do believe that there are things connected to what was happening in the first century that are still happening today, that are analogous to it, that are similar to it, that are in the same category of it. I think that's the whole basis, again, for the Reformers saying, prophecy is not direct revelation from God, but it is the gifted, inspired proclamation of the word. That's the whole basis for them saying, um, it's no longer that, but now it's this. And I think that's one of the challenging things of the whole question is, If indeed reformed people like John Owen could say that there's some aspects of what was happening in the first century that are not happening today, and yet there's a connection between what was happening then and what is happening now, how do we identify that? And how do we define that? And how do we talk about that? And how do, excuse me, how do we encourage that in the body of Christ? Um, As Sinclair Ferguson said, Uh, John Owen is simply saying it is the same spirit who gives both temporary and continuing gifts to the church. We should not be surprised, therefore, to discover common threads in both common threads. And so I think I want to conclude with this question in terms of application. For me, R.C. Sproul is saying, you know what? The bottom line is the word of God is crucial. The word of God is crucial for evaluating 
um, what is going on in the charismatic movement. It's actually crucial for evaluating what's going on in our own church and what's going on in our own hearts and lives. So let's say you have a thought. What do you do with that thought? Do you immediately say, well, that must be from God. And so I'm going to do what that thought tells me to do. Whether it's a bad thing, like walking away from your family, or it's a great thing, like giving $1,000 to a particular homeless person. What do we do with someone who walks up to me or you and says, this is what I think God wants you to do. Or this is what I believe God is going to do in your life. He's going to let you marry a pastor. What do you do with that? Well, I think what we should do with all of it is we evaluate it in light of what Scripture clearly says and in light of biblical wisdom. And if we don't think it's consistent with Scripture and we don't think it's wise, all things considered, we don't do it. We don't receive it. We don't say it must be from God, even though it is totally against Scripture or it's totally against the wise thing to do. We shouldn't think that way because the Bible teaches us to live in accordance with what God clearly tells us to do or not do. And it tells us to be wise, biblically wise. And so there are those who would say, there are Reformed believers like Wayne Grudem, who would say prophecy today doesn't look like, well, his view is a complicated view. But he would say prophecy today is kind of like um, someone, a godly person coming up to you and giving you advice. And that you should evaluate it in light of the scripture and wisdom. I agree with Wayne Grudem about that last part, that you should evaluate uh, whatever you hear, whether you're hearing it in your own head or hearing it from someone else. You evaluate it in light of what Scripture clearly says and biblical wisdom, all things considered. I just don't agree that that's what was happening in the New Testament. But I agree with the way he says it ought to be handled today because I think that is the way we ought to think about it. And so, even if you're not terribly concerned about spiritual gifts, hopefully you're terribly concerned about what you think and what people are telling you. And the question is, how are you evaluating that? How are you determining whether or not that's really what God wants you to think or say or do? And the biblical position, I think, is we evaluate it in light of the Word of God and in light of the wisdom that we get from what the Word of God says And we pursue what is right and we pursue what we believe is wise, all things considered. And we're not just simply blindly saying, well, I can't see that. Don't know where that came from, but it must be from God because I feel it so strongly. We can't live by our feelings. We have to live by the word of God. We have to be careful. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement it is to to love you most and to allow our love for you and our desire to love like you love rule all other loves in our life. 
I thank you that your word encourages us to come to church to actually edify each other, to do good for each other, to encourage each other to um, trust you and to hope in you and to love like you love. I thank you that your word encourages us to evaluate what we think and feel and what other people think and feel in light of your word and not to be simply ruled by our own thoughts, ruled by our own feelings, but actually uh, to be in submission to your word and to be gladly submitted to your word, trusting the Holy Spirit through the word to lead us. And Father, we just pray that you would help us as we think through this and continue to work through this because it is very practical. It goes beyond the issue of spiritual gifts. And it goes beyond uh, these kinds of things to the worship that we have together and the life that we live day to day. So help us to see those important connections and help us to grow in our walk with you. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.